It's a story that won't go away. It's been with us since really right after the Ukraine war. It is the story of the LME. And it's just a story, as they say, with legs. It just continues to deliver dramatic headlines. I mean, Bloomberg News, battle for aluminum stocks is draining LME of non-Russian metal. So remember the story from two or three weeks ago where we were discussing how there's this huge position of aluminum that was going to be taken for delivery at the London Metal Exchange. And now we're seeing the fallout of that. In this, again, this story on Bloomberg News, the trader that last month built up a dominant position in aluminum has begun taking delivery of some metal while rejecting supplies produced in Russia. The latest evidence of a diverging market that is leaving the London Metal Exchange contract increasingly dependent on Russian material. IXM, a metals trader owned by China's CMOC Group, last month built up an unusually large position in the key LME aluminum contract for May delivery. It has started withdrawing some metal from the exchange, largely to deliver to its customers, according to people familiar with the matter, who asked not to be identified as the matter isn't public. And then scrolling down a little bit, while aluminum prices have slid in recent months on worries about the global economy, top traders including IXM and Trafigura Group have been battling for relatively scarce non-Russian stocks amid expectations that the market could rapidly tighten. On Monday, the LME published updated warehouse data that showed the proportion of Russian origin metal underpinning the LME's aluminum contract jumped from 52% at the end of April to 68% at the end of May. So that is quite a change in a month, 14% higher stock of Russian aluminum. And this is interesting. So maybe this was Alcoa's point because we have Roy Harvey from Alcoa here because it looked purely like they just wanted to take advantage of the situation and remove Russian metal from the LME in order to, you know, command higher prices. But I guess the question maybe that Roy Harvey was bringing up, perhaps, is if there's a lot of Russian metal on the market, but nobody wants the Russian metal, this is going to distort the market to the downside. And therefore, on that pretext, Russian metal should not be included in the LME. And here's the quote from Roy Harvey. At some point, the only thing left in LME warehouses will be metal that is only consumed by a small group of non-Western producers. The LME on Monday defended its decision to continue allowing Russian aluminum, publishing data showing that 19% of the 167,000 tons of aluminum requested for delivery in May was Russian metal. And we have a quote from the exchange. This suggests that Russian aluminum continues to flow through the warehousing network and that a meaningful set of global consumers continue to accept Russian metal. And one assumes that once all the non-Russian metal is gone, people will be maybe a little more open-minded to taking Russian metal if that's the only choice they have. I mean, I keep bringing this up and maybe it's a non-issue in the minds of many people listening, but... I keep coming back to this issue of what happens when you run out? Like, I understand, you know, supply and demand, and therefore the price should go higher. But I'm kind of always back to this idea, if there's no metal available, there is no metal available. I suppose then the price gets so high that stocks begin to 
reappear. But it does make you wonder. Again, ideas of supply and demand are often predicated on the notion of unlimited growth, that we can grow forever, right? Like if capitalism has a critique, in my personal view, it's that we can't grow forever. If we grow forever, we're going to run out of raw materials. So this whole idea that we have to keep growing at minimum 2% a year and, and the more the better forever starts to run into supply constraints at a certain point, whether it's next month or next year or 10 years from now or a, a century from now, one assumes that technology will not bail us out. I mean, it is possible we could say that fusion would solve this problem. If we can solve fusion, you know, they can make gold in a lab. They can make it. It just takes so much energy, from my understanding, it takes so much energy that it's not worth it. The amount of energy it takes to produce that gold far exceeds the value of the gold. Therefore, it's not worth it. So fusion would, you know, theoretically solve that problem. Also, asteroid mining, all that sort of thing. But for the time being, that's all theoretical. That is speculative. That is sci-fi for the time being. Probably will happen at some point. It's not crazy, and it could happen a lot sooner than we might imagine. But again, in the meantime, I am back to this issue. What happens when we run out of metal? And what's so interesting about this story that we're looking at is it seems to start to show what might happen. So copper is the same issue. So very interesting to follow this LME story. And there's another one. And don't forget, LME is owned. This is another thing that has to be mentioned. It's owned by China's CMOC group. So it is a Chinese-owned exchange now. Isn't that interesting? Because look at this next story. The London Metal Exchange said on Friday it had received first application to approve a new nickel brand for delivery against its nickel contract. It cut the waiting times for listing to three months from six to nine months in March. So they cut the waiting times for listing a new kind of nickel. And remember, it was only, I think, one or two weeks ago where we saw that story how Emirate, the French metallurgy and processing company, was now going to Shanghai to price its ferro-nickel, which is used to make steel, that they no longer felt comfortable with the London Metal Exchange price and that they would be using Shanghai metal market price from here on in. So that also has to be kept in mind as we continue the story. The 146-year-old exchange has struggled to revive nickel volume since prices jumped to a record above $100,000 a ton in disorderly trade in March 2022, forcing the LME to suspend the nickel market for the first time since 1988. Many nickel consumers, producers, and traders who abandoned the market in the aftermath are yet to return, partly because of price volatility, which is restrained by daily price limits imposed by the world's largest and oldest forum for metals trading. So, again, as we start to see fissures and cracks potentially in the London Metal Exchange, you know, the significance really can't be overstated for the mining business. This is the world's largest and oldest forum for metals trading. 
So the iconographic significance, the symbolic significance of this image starting to deteriorate, one could argue, is a micro view of a macro shift of economic power from West to East. Not an insignificant matter. Continuing on, at the end of March, the LME, owned by Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, HKX, announced measures to address low inventory levels and boost liquidity in electronic trading. The LME said it had received an application to approve nickel produced by Chuizhou Waiyu Cobalt New Material, a subsidiary of China's Zhengjiang Waiyu Cobalt as a list brand. So nickel produced by Kuzhu Waiyu Cobalt New Material, which is a subsidiary of China's Zhengjiang Waiyu Cobalt Company as a list brand. Now that the Chinese own it, they are starting to bring their own nickel. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. They may be doing it because that's the nickel people are dealing with. It may be related indirectly to what we're seeing with Aramet there. Here is a quote from a trader. It's a start and could help with liquidity of the contract, but it's not going to be a game changer. Stocks need replenishing. It's going to take more than one new brand for that to happen. So it is a refrain we've been seeing for months now that the stocks on the LME are low. Continuing on, the LME said it expects more fast-track applications in coming months. Nickel inventories in LME-registered warehouses at 37,000 tons are at their lowest since 2007. An ominous year there. Part of the problem is that the nickel market is now dominated by nickel pig iron, a lower-grade nickel used by stainless steel producers, which cannot be delivered against the LME's contract. NPI, also known as Nickel Pig Iron, is expected to amount to more than 50% of global supplies estimated at 3.2 million metric tons this year, compared with 18% that can be delivered against the LME contract, according to Macquarie analyst Jim Lennon. The LME said in March it would work with China's Qinghai Mercantile Exchange to introduce a new Class 2 nickel spot market in China. So, again... That was Reuters via Mining.com. The first story was Bloomberg via Mining.com. We are getting multiple stories here of issues relating to low inventory on the London Metal Exchange. And interestingly, it's getting more intense where all of a sudden one could imagine, and we haven't even brought up copper yet, one could imagine at some point that buyers in the West who don't want Russian aluminum, sooner or later, they're going to run into the dilemma of, do we buy the Russian aluminum or do we not buy any? And perhaps, to be charitable, perhaps this was Alcoa's concern, you know, two or three months ago, was Russian metal that people don't want is going to distort the price of what it's tempting to be called ESG metal. I mean, Robert Friedland has you know, predicted this, that at a certain point, there will be a copper price and an ESG copper price, to paraphrase. And interestingly, we are seeing this happen with aluminum in real time here on the London Metal Exchange. So we will continue to follow this story here and all stories relating to natural resources and geopolitics. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. We have a wonderful show for you today. 
a fantastic interview with the president, CEO, and co-founder of Fortuna Silver, Jorge Antonio Ganoza, and it was fascinating. One of the main reasons I was excited to interview Jorge was because they work in very interesting and topical, we might say, jurisdictions, including West Africa and South America, as well as Mexico. And we are seeing a lot of legislation out of Mexico and South America. And we are seeing for two, three, four years, significant geopolitical unrest in West Africa. So I was absolutely thrilled to get Jorge Ganoza on, and he did not disappoint. A very straight shooter view of what is going on in both those jurisdictions. So a fascinating interview and how Fortuna Silver is doing. I mean, as I mentioned to him at the start of the interview, I first learned about Fortuna Silver being a subscriber to the Dines Letter, you know, back in 2010. It was 2009 where I was lucky enough at the time to catch the rare earth bull market. That's how I got suckered into this business because all of a sudden when you 7X your money as someone in your, you know, late 20s, you start to go, this is a pretty interesting business. And here we are 15 years later, my friends. So welcome back. It's going to be a great episode. And there are some fascinating news, including updates on Tech and Glencore, aluminum smelter in Canada, and more. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, there are major forest fires that are disrupting mining operations across North America. Canadian operations halted as miners grapple with record wildfires, this is Henry Lazenby at the Northern Miner with a fascinating story. Despite the outlook calling for improving weather conditions, including anticipated rainfall and cooler temperatures, the mining industry in Ontario and Quebec is grappling with a disruptive blow caused by persistent wildfires. Record-setting wildfires have been wreaking havoc across Canada since March, reaching peak intensity this month. And I'm sure a lot of you have seen those pictures of New York City that look like Blade Runner 2049 with the orange background. Surreal. Experts have marked the ongoing wildfire season as the most severe in Canadian history, sparing no provinces or territories except Nunavut. Government data sources show Quebec has borne the brunt of the 2023 wildfire onslaught, witnessing a surge in frequency and intensity compared to previous years. Well, I was talking to my mom this weekend, and she grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. She lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. She said that was the hottest May I ever remembered in her entire life. So that is quite something, and maybe part of the cause of these record-setting fires. The impact of these fires has extended beyond the affected regions, with thick smoke blanketing Ottawa, Toronto, and large parts of southern Ontario from June 5th to 7th, the air quality in these areas reached its high level on Environment Canada's Air Quality Health Index, posing a significant risk to public health. As of June 8th, Quebec alone reported an alarming count of 137 active fires. 137. And you see it if you go to northernminer.com and click on this story, you will see a very interesting map. 
and there are a lot of fires. I mean, you see all these fires, they almost look like they all want to join together. While Ontario battled 54 blazes, according to Canada's National Environmental Satellite Data and Information Service, according to the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre as of June 9th, there were 422 active wildfires across Canada. So far this year, there have been 2,402 wildfires burning 4.5 million hectares of land. Here's a rundown of mining company operations that have been affected over the past week, and it is quite a list. Hecla Mining has suspended operations at its Casa Berardi Mine in Quebec. Osisco Mining said on June 5th it had suspended all activities on the Windfall Gold Project. Walbridge Mining, Quebec Nickel, Troilus Gold, Q2 Metals, Patriot Battery Metals, Brunswick Exploration, Champion Electric Metals, Bonterra Resources, Archer Exploration, Cosmos Exploration, all in Ontario and Quebec. The Iron Ore Company of Canada, majority owned by Rio Tinto, has experienced transportation disruptions. The Quebec North Shore and Labrador Railway will remain suspended due to fire, smoke hazards, and damage to telecommunication and power lines. Operations at its Labrador City mine have also been halted. Westome Gold Mines also suspended underground and surface exploration, mosaic minerals, and Agnico Eagle, according to Reuters, said some operations were reduced between June 2nd and 5th and have returned to normal. However, exploration activities carried out by the Quebec Regional Exploration Team in the impacted sector remain suspended. So, huge story as these fires continue in Canada with devastating consequences across the continent. Now, we have an update here on Glencore and Tech, and it really is a bit of a curveball here. Not, I think, what people would expect. Glencore bids for Tech Resources Coal Unit. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi on northernminer.com. Glencore confirmed on Monday it had approached Tech Resources with a proposal to buy the Canadian miners' steelmaking coal business. In the latest twist in one of the mining industry's biggest takeover battles in a decade. So everybody thought they wanted the copper, and maybe they did. But now, they seem to be chasing the coal. The Swiss giant, which does not typically take no for an answer, originally wanted to buy tech entirely, while it succeeded in thwarting the Vancouver-based miners' plan to split into two companies. Glencore did not give up on that idea. After being rejected several times, the miner and commodities firm has approached tech with a proposal to buy its steelmaking coal business for an undisclosed valuation as an alternative to the $23 billion takeover bid. Glencore said that if successful, it would create a new company combining its own coal assets and techs in one to two years after paying down the debt. The move would create a coal mammoth with few rivals in scale anywhere in the world, producing over 100 million tons of thermal coal and 30 million tons of steelmaking coal a year. The company said it also, quote, remains willing to pursue, end quote, its original offer to buy the whole company. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it's a lot harder for tech to go out there and say, and for people, you know, Canadians to go out there and demand that we save our coal. It doesn't have the same branding as copper, a green metal. Analysts say Glencore's new plan gives it an opportunity to exit the hugely profitable but polluting thermal coal business. They noted that tech steelmaking coal operations, however, represented a, quote, disappointing, end quote, second prize to the Canadian company's copper mines. Tech has the High Valley Copper Mine in BC, the Cabrada Blanca and Carmen de Andacolo Copper Mines in Chile, and the Carmen de Andacolo Copper Mine in Central Chile, and an interest in the Antamina Copper Zinc Mine in Peru. 
The company is also in the midst of expanding Cabrera Blanca. The project, dubbed QB2, is one of the world's largest undeveloped copper resources. And we have a quote from Deutsche Bank analyst Liam Fitzpatrick, quote, we would view the sale of the coking coal assets to Glencore as an attractive middle ground for both companies. It would provide tech with a cleaner exit from coal and allow Glencore to split its own business into Coal Co. and Metals Co. It is interesting. I mean, it's tempting to call it a face-saving move for both sides. I mean, Cecilia Jamasmi, and if you didn't hear that interview I did about a month ago with Cecilia on everything that was going on, pointed out that we had two new CEOs here and that there was a lot on the line on a personal level for both the Glencore and the tech resources CEOs. And perhaps here we have a kind of face-saving move where both parties can perhaps agree to a price for the coal unit and not feel a kind of public humiliation of sorts that they had lost, so to speak. The experts echoes Glencore's chief executive Gary Nagel's position. He said in May that Biontech's coal business only would be a, quote, distant second in terms of benefits that could be achieved by merging. So perhaps if I was to speculate here, Glencore understands that Norm Keevil is not going to give him the keys. Perhaps that's what's been learned in the last month here, is that Norm Keevil is not going to sell. Because Norm Keevil said he would only sell if the board went for it. He probably only said that because he knew the board would never go for it. So an interesting development here. So perhaps this is even a face-saving move for Gary Nagel to a certain degree. At the same time, I mean, remember Mark Brissot tried to get Newmont? I mean, was that such a humiliation that he never ended up accomplishing that? I don't think so. But nevertheless, human nature being human nature... When there are standoffs of this kind, it is hard to back off, particularly as new CEOs. Continuing on, Glencore Carmakers lead $1 billion acquisition of Appian nickel copper mines in Brazil. So here, Glencore has been acquiring some nickel copper mines. Private equity firm Appian Capital Advisory is selling its wholly owned Atlantic Nickel and Minerazzo Ballet Verde operations in Brazil to ACG Acquisition Company for $1 billion in cash, with capital coming from battery metals-hungry actors, including Glencore and Volkswagen. The company said the transaction will position ACG as the only London-listed nickel sulfide producer of scale. The firm has entered into long-term investment partnerships with Glencore, Power Co., which is Volkswagen's in-house battery development subsidiary, and Stellantis, owner of Fiat and Peugeot, for offtake and funding. So Glencore is out to acquire while things are still cheap here. Another story, GM embraces Tesla's EV charging system. Wall Street cheers. This is Reuters via mining.com. And you may have seen this, but I did want to touch on it. General Motors will join Ford in adopting Tesla's North America charging plug standard and give GM electric vehicle buyers access to the Tesla supercharger network under an agreement announced on Thursday. Well, if everybody had their own charging station, the whole argument for environmentalism would start to diminish, wouldn't it? If all of a sudden Ford had their own charging stations and then GM. I mean, again, where is all this metal going to come from? And I'm kind of back to my, you know, personal view of do we really need this many cars? Is that the solution to the environment is to build millions and millions and millions of cars? I'm not sure. And again, it's an open question, you know, okay, so they're battery powered vehicles. How much oil 
how much fossil fuel are you going to use to extract these green metals? The energy has to come from somewhere, and we're not using solar power for the most part, or you know, wind power in order to extract these metals. So it's often forgotten, you know, it takes energy to extract. And that should be remembered. Continuing on, Rio Tinto to invest $1.1 billion to expand aluminum smelter in Canada. So back to the aluminum issue. And one could imagine part of the reason is because in Quebec, where I believe this should be set up, they have hydropower. Reuters via mining.com, Rio Tinto will invest $1.1 billion to expand its low-carbon aluminum smelter at Complex Chanquier in Quebec, Canada, the Anglo-Australian mining giant said on Monday. The investment will boost annual capacity by about 160,000 metric tons of primary aluminum, the global miner said, adding it was sufficient to power 400,000 electric cars. Pressure to cut greenhouse gas emissions has prompted Rio, Alcoa, and other aluminum manufacturers to launch a raft of products with lower carbon emissions. So we're back to this idea that we were mentioning in the introduction of, are we going to end up with two prices here? I mean, maybe this already exists, and I'm just not aware of it. But it seems to me that Robert Friedland was 100% right. We are going to have ESG copper and non-ESG copper. We are going to have ESG aluminum and non-ESG aluminum. And finally, just a couple of metal stories here. Top South Africa fund bets on platinum as power cuts hit miners. So in South Africa, they've been having major problems with power for at least a year. And this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. A fund run by one of South Africa's largest asset managers has altered its approach on platinum, seeing better returns from betting on the physical metal while offloading shares in companies that produce it as they grapple with a power crisis. Interesting, I'm tempted to call that arbitrage, where you buy the metal because you don't think the miners are going to be able to deliver because of power issues. Coronation Fund Managers has reduced the Impala Platinum Holding and Northam Platinum Holding shares in its resources fund this year and cut its position in Anglo-American Platinum, parent Anglo-American. The move reflects strains on miners from a crippling electricity shortage in the world's biggest producer of the metal. So, yeah, the fundamentals sound pretty good there, don't they? And this is super interesting, too. I had to touch on this story because it echoes exactly what Jorge Ganoza says in our upcoming interview here. As he was saying there, there's a landmass the size of Texas in West Africa that produces more gold than any country alone in the world. And here we have a story from Reuters Ghana returns to gold top spot as output jumps 32%. Ghana is one of the countries that Jorge mentions in the interview. Ghana recorded a 32% increase in gold production last year, enabling it to win back the top spot from South Africa as the largest gold producer on the continent, the president of the Mines Chamber said on Friday. Ghana lost the position to South Africa in 2021 after a drastic fall in output. And we have a quote from Joshua Mortodi, the president of Ghana Chamber of Mines, who told members at an annual general meeting, quote, the large-scale gold subsector recorded its highest output in the country's history in 2022. And this is interesting here as well. Mortodi said member companies of the Mines Chamber had sold over 77,620 ounces of gold under the Domestic Gold Purchase Program, a scheme launched by the Bank of Ghana to boost reserves. So you see what they're doing? Just like China, as people say, 
none of the gold leaves China. They keep everything they produce, and it looks like Ghana is doing something similar here, which seems, from the view of this podcast host, as quite smart. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, as we do, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, and we're also going to look at the 10-year U.K. gilts because they continue to be interesting. The U.S. 10-year bond is at 3.74%. That is 0.08% higher than last week, and the highest that we've seen it for, let's say, three or four months. And the U.K. 10-year, I was looking at this earlier, we were discussing it a couple of shows ago. Look at this. Now it's at 4.375%. I mean, earlier in the day, just an hour or so ago, it was at 4.41%. And my friends, when we had the big, you know, UK bond crisis last October, it was at 4.45 is where it was peaked out at, according to this chart on CNBC. So this morning, it was at 4.41%. To set the backdrop, so turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,964.15 per ounce. That is $14 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $24.21 per ounce. That is $0.74 higher than last week. Platinum is lower at $990.02 per ounce. That is $40 lower than last week. And palladium is also lower at $1,343.93 per ounce. That is $71 lower than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is down $0.02 at $3.75 per pound. Iron ore is up $4 at $111.14 per metric ton. Aluminum is down a penny at $1.01 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at $0.94 per pound. Nickel is also lower at $9.54 per pound. That is $0.03 lower than last week. Tin is higher at $12.02 per pound. That is $0.39 higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.39 per pound. Lithium is $43.75 per kilogram. That is $2 higher than last week. So continuing to recover there. Uranium continues to slowly edge higher. It is at $55.50 per pound. That is 90 cents higher than last week. And continuing just a gradual climb over the last four weeks. And zinc is two cents higher at $1.06 per pound. So what do we see here is lithium has stabilized here on the weekly. Uranium is quietly moving up. Copper and aluminum and lead, I'd say, are at healthy levels. There's copper at 375. Again, iron ore has recovered after the last, you know, six weeks of downside. And then turning to precious metals, I mean, gold and silver up on the week and platinum and palladium down on the week. So a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, maybe people are waiting for the inflation numbers that come out today. And also there is the Federal Reserve 
and whether they will raise or not raise interest rates. So perhaps this kind of mixed you know, market without too much drama is waiting for news on those items, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Jorge Ganoza, co-founder, president, and CEO of Fortuna Silver Mines. And it really felt like I was interviewing someone who comes from the international mining community, someone that comes from a family that has mined for generations, and really brought the insights of someone who really lived and breathed and grew up in mining culture. So it was a fascinating interview on how a company measures jurisdictional risk and how Fortuna Silver especially navigates this very, you know, tricky topic because they have moved into West Africa, as Jorge Ganoza said, not uncontroversially. So it's a fascinating interview with wonderful insights. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Jorge Ganoza, President, CEO, and co-founder of Fortuna Silver to the Northern Miner podcast. Jorge, welcome to the show. Thank you for the opportunity, Adrian, and a pleasure to be joining you in the podcast. Well, it's great to have you. I've heard about your company since when I started getting into this whole business, when I subscribed that fateful day to the Dines letter, and in his precious metals section of stocks that he loved, there was Fortuna Silver. And Fortuna has always been a bit of a gauge for me since then to kind of measure how silver stocks are doing. And of course, you guys are, I think, beyond silver with gold as well. Give us a little bit of background for those that don't know too much about Fortuna. Yes, you know, uh, Fortuna has uh, evolved through its journey. Back when we started in, in 2005, it was a small company. There were three individuals with no money and big ideas. So we, we leveraged on what we uh, had in our favor, which was uh, knowledge. In those days, silver was trading at around $3.50, $4, completely out of favor. So we decided to focus on silver, focus on Peru and, and Mexico, which were two jurisdictions that we knew quite well. I come from a Peruvian mining family that's been operating in the mining sector for generations. So you know, we leveraged on that and we came about the acquisition of the Cayoma mine, then the Mexican uh, or Mexican operation San Jose, which was a tremendous success story for us. And over the years, the company has grown or strategy has moved on as well. So we're more of a gold silver producer today. Silver accounts for about 20% of revenue. We diversified outside of Latin America. We also operate in West Africa, which I believe is one of the most exciting gold mining jurisdictions in the world today. You know, we employ 5,500 people across two continents, five, six countries. So the company has changed quite a lot. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it, and it sounds like quite a journey. So as it stands today, how many operating mines do you have? Five. Wow, five. Okay, so that's pretty good. And and where are those located? Starting in Latin America, we have the San Jose mine in the state of Oaxaca in southern Mexico. San Jose is an underground silver gold mine. It's a 3,000 ton per day underground mine 
that at a time ranked among the top 10, 12 primary silver producers in the world. In Peru, we have the Cayoma Silver Let's Think Mine. It's a historic producer. It's a mine with an incredible history. It's been uh, producing silver since pre-colonial times, right? We operate that mine since 2006. It was our first mining operation. In Argentina, in the province of Salta, we operate the Lindero Gold Open Pit. It's an open pit hip leach mine. Then moving across the Atlantic to West Africa, we operate the Yaramoco mine in Burkina Faso. And uh, more exciting is uh, that this past month of May, we poured first gold at our newest and, and fifth mine, the Seguela gold mine in the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire. Interesting. So these are two very interesting parts of the world, I guess, South America. And I guess if you're in Mexico, that'd be North America as well, as well as in West Africa. So maybe let's start with West Africa. You started in South America and then you went to West Africa. Was there pushback at all with people that were concerned, perhaps, that maybe the security situation was going to be you know, difficult? Can you tell us just about the story about moving into Africa and what that was like? Yes, it was certainly controversial. No? It was quite controversial. But what I told all our investors was we have to be willing to take some short-term pain for long-term gain. Our move to West Africa was through the acquisition of uh, Rocks Gold. Rocks Gold owned at the time the Yaramoco gold mine in Burkina Faso and owned pre-development stage project named Seguela. So Yaramoco, uh, Rocks Gold owned the, the Yaramoco mine in Burkina Faso, a mine that had been producing uh, gold since 2016, and owned the Seguela Gold Project, which was a feasibility stage, pre-development stage project. So when we acquired Rocks Gold, we just didn't see the value in, in the asset portfolio, which we liked very much. But we saw a value added by acquiring a platform for business. And that is so important to understand. We were moving from a well-established business platform that we developed in Latin America into a new jurisdiction. So we didn't just acquire an asset in Africa or two assets in Africa. By acquiring Roxhold, we were able to incorporate into Fortuna a lean business machine for business in West Africa. So we were able to hit the ground running. The integration was smooth, uh, uh, something that we identified early on, that although the uh, Roxwell management was largely, you know, uh, Australian-based at the time and whatnot, we did share a lot of similarities with respect to business values and even culture, I would say, culture, mining culture, right? how you create business, how you create value for shareholders, no? So the Roxwell was not a promotional story. They were really trying to, to provide value by unlocking the value of the resources they had in the ground, right? Uh, doing proper engineering, being very technical, uh, trying to achieve operational excellence through all those means. So, and, and that just made a lot of sense with respect to how we run the business and it was a, it's been a smooth integration, but it was controversial. The market 
can be quite unmerciful when when transactions when you pay a premium. This was an all-share transaction, an all-share with a premium. So we saw arbitrage playing in at the time of the transaction. The, the stock under a lot of pressure. But since then, you know, we've shown that uh, it's a transaction that made sense. You know, and our Latin American business had a shareholder base of investors for whom West Africa uh, seemed exotic and remote. But you know what? We went to West Africa because really the quality of opportunities we saw there were just better than what we were identifying throughout the Americas. And with that, I'm counting Canada, the US, Mexico, Central and South America. Just the quality of, of, of opportunities was far superior. The value we saw was far superior. And, and that's why we decided to make the move. And uh, let me share with you a, a fun fact. I'm sure you know this, but I don't know if you've seen it in this manner. If you draw a contour around Ghana, Burkina Faso, the gold-producing region of Mali, which is southwestern Mali, the gold-producing region of Senegal, and then you loop around the Ivory Coast, you draw a, a contour around that, that surface area is uh, similar in size to the state of Texas in the US. That area produces more gold than any country in the world. That area mm -hmm. the, that has the surface of Texas produces more gold than continental-sized nations like China, Canada, Australia, or the entire continental United States. That area produces around 380 tons of gold annually ahead of China, which is, you know, as, as a nation, the largest gold producer in the world. So uh, quite amazing. And it's been established over the years as a premier mining jurisdiction. This is one of the few places where you can take a discovery to production in five years still, right? So I tell my investors, that mining is a frontier business. It has always been a frontier business. We would all love to have our mines in the comfort of safe jurisdictions and whatnot, but that's not how mining was forged through history. It's always been a frontier business. And uh, we play in the frontier. We know how to manage the political, social political complexities of that. That's an edge that Fortuna brings to the investor. So we are not growing our business in Canada or, or or Nevada. No, we leave that for others. We look for, for the better assets in these richly endowed jurisdictions where you have to be able to assume some political geopolitical risk. And so how has it been for you then? So since you've landed, I assume there have been challenges, you know, because it has been a little bit of a hot spot there. There has been violence against miners in West Africa in the last couple of years. You know, it, it was a hot spot. Maybe that's how you're able to acquire it. So how has it been for you then? What is the reality on the ground? The reality on the ground is first, and, and there are papers uh, written about this, and it's every now and then uh, media touches on how, in spite of the political uncertainty, turmoils, the eventual coup that takes place every so often, there is a relentless support to mining in West Africa. So we we feel that, we experience that, right? 
So, for example, in, in Burkina Faso, no doubt that the security situation has been deteriorating over the past years. The first time I went to Burkina Faso was back in 2015. And, you know, over the last seven years, the situation has deteriorated. Today, we're not looking to expand our business in Burkina Faso any further. We're just looking to maintain the investments we have. We need to see clear signs that the security situation improves. We have taken a lot of measures to protect our, our, our people, to protect our assets. And it's a difficult environment to operate in, no doubt, no? But again, that's, uh, I believe, an edge that Fortuna brings. And uh, we we work in close coordination with, you know, authorities at multiple levels. We we take measures and our assets, our asset selection. Let, let me put it this way. There is really no safe place in Burkina Faso. If you look at a heat map of the country, it all, it's all red. But within that, there are safer places. Our assets are in the safer places, no? And still places where we have to take all sorts of measures and precautions, right? Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, is a is a is a better operating environment today, no? Far more stable on 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 politics and and security. Yeah. Very very interesting. So I assume then that the authorities or the local governments that they want you to stay in business. They're supportive because they get the benefits of you guys mining gold. Uh, they get a, a cut of that. So do you feel, just to wrap up on Africa, uh, do you feel like you're getting support from the local governments? And I assume they are, but uh, 100%. what do you say? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think uh, most of the West African nations view mining as an important tool to achieve their development goals. Responsible mining, that is, of course. And so then going back to South America then, as we kind of wrap up here, there has been all sorts of, and, and I guess it's true in Africa as well. I mean, that, which is why it's so interesting to have you on. There's been a lot of talk. I mean, we saw lithium in Chile of not quite a hard nationalization, but you know, a light one in Mexico, we started seeing some you know, changes to the permits being reduced in, in length. There's been all sorts of moves around the world, really, on what we might loosely call resource nationalism. And so how do you feel about everything, like working in South America as well as Africa? I mean, how do you manage that from your perspective as president and CEO of Fortuna Silver? Yes, first, uh, an overarching comment on that, which I think is a most topical issue, no? I think for a number of years now, uh, society at large has been measuring uh, extractive industries against a heightened standard, no? Uh, I compared what was running the business, but it's not just for mining, it's across all industries, I believe. But mining is easier to single out because we're out there in those remote places in contact with communities that are usually disadvantaged, right? But as a whole, society is measuring against a heightened standard. And we are always evolving and deploying uh, effort towards meeting those uh, society expectations with respect to how we conduct ourselves and what 
right? And in some cases, they're we've been doing the right thing for many years. We've been social, uh, working hard to socialize our presence, be uh, you know responsible with the environment for decades, but perhaps we have not been communicating it all that way, right? So I, I think there is a concerted global effort to improve uh, transparency, communication, and we're all for it. Now, a lot of these countries that we recognize as, as, as mining countries, countries with a long and proud mining tradition, like Mexico, like Chile, even like Peru, all of a sudden question the role of mining in their uh, development goals or, or, or what the role of the state should be or how much mining should we want. I believe there is a bit of confusion also globally regarding the need to decarbonatize and how to achieve it. People are in some cases naive uh, thinking that you can achieve decarbonization goals with, without mining. Now, and, and on the mining side of things, well, we, we have to also be at the, ahead of the issues, thinking, for example, you know, how do we reduce our footprints, right? You know, what technologies can we develop and whatnot? That's usually more in the hands of the larger companies that have the resources to lead on the side of uh, innovation, and the rest of us will be probably quick uh, adopters no, quick in adapting and adopting these new technologies, but uh, we're all concerned about how we reduce our, our, our footprint or, or water consumption. How do we better contain uh, and become zero discharge operations and, and, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, Mexico has passed a law that I believe is adverse to investment. They basically said there will be no more private exploration in open ground. You know, Mexico has banned under the new law private funded exploration in, in open mineral exploration in open ground, among other things that I believe will drive uh, all of a lot of us to question or, or long-term investment plans in Mexico. Chile, well you mentioned it, no? There is they're reviewing their role with, with lithium. Peru, Peru is a country that, again, a long uh, and, and, and proud mining tradition is reassessing how to, to engage with, with extractive industries, right? So a very dynamic environment. I'll just tell you that in 2021, when I did the transaction, a lot of the investors that were critical of the transaction were saying, you are increasing the geopolitical risk of the company by moving to West Africa. And uh, two years later, I have a lot of the same guys saying the Latin American portfolio weighs on the valuation because of geopolitical risk. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very so, dynamic. That is hilarious. So diversification maybe is the moral of the story here. You know, I think Fortuna as a strategy, we're well anchored in these two prime mining regions. We are not looking to move out of there. We're looking to, to harvest the opportunities that we have in those two regions. And there might be a lot of political uncertainty at times in one jurisdiction versus the other. But one thing that all of these jurisdictions have in common, Adrian, is that they are all mining jurisdictions. They are all mining. 
they might be rethinking the role of mining or not, but they are all mining jurisdictions. You know, Chile is the largest copper producer in the world. Peru uh, is struggling to hold to its second place as a, as a you know, uh, copper producer in the world. Mexico's second, first lar largest uh, silver producer in the world. West Africa, you know, a force in, in global gold production. That's where we are, no? Right. So you're looking at the big picture. The long-term fundamentals is these are places that have been mining for, in some cases, centuries, or at least a very long time. It is in the DNA of the country. And so whatever happens on the short term, long term, these are mining jurisdictions, to your point. So how do you feel? I mean, some people, just as we're finishing up here, like I've heard, you know, Sean Boyd at one point a few years ago, ironically, was saying how Igniko Eagle didn't want to grow too big too quickly. How do you treat that? Like, are you guys still looking to expand? Or are you just looking to consolidate and run your business well? How are you approaching that? You know, it's, I, I go back to what I said. We, that's a, a strategic question we already asked ourselves, right? How much diversification can we take without losing operational readiness, without losing the operational discipline, right? We are split. Uh, the company has a split between regions. So I work with two chief operating officers, one overseas West Africa, one overseas LATAM. And we're not looking to grow outside of those two regions. We have put the management structure in place to oversee those regions effectively. With the five mines we operate, probably we start to see that uh, if there is a sixth mine coming, it's perhaps one coming in, one going out, right? And we look for growth, yes, but we prioritize first the countries where we are already established and second, near neighbors, places where we can use the management structures that we have in place. We have a, for West Africa, our management hub is in the city of Abidjan in, in the Ivory Coast. And for the Latin business, our management hub is in the city of Lima in Peru. So from those two hubs, we manage each region. We just announced an acquisition for Chesa Resources in uh, Senegal. Senegal is part of uh, Francophone West Africa, and uh, it's a, a jurisdiction that we can easily manage with the infrastructure we have in place in Abidjan. That's so it falls within the category of one of these near neighbors to where we are established. So we're not looking to, again, to go to Australia or, or Canada or, or whatever. At this stage in our, in our evolution, we need to consolidate in the regions where we are that I believe offer tremendous promise for our future. Well, it sounds like a pretty solid strategy here. Final question here, Jorge. What message do you have for investors? Is there anything that you want them to know? Fortuna is, uh, you know, coming out of uh, years of transactions and, and capital deployment, and we're coming to a time of harvest. Our flagship asset, the Seguela mine, did its first gold pour a couple of weeks ago. So uh, that will be a mine that produces this year's 60 to 70,000 ounces of gold because it's only going to produce, you know, for the second half of the year. But on an annual basis, should be producing between 120 and 150,000 ounces of gold annually. But more importantly, 
at an all-in sustaining cost, we estimate of $1,000 or below. So uh, it has uh, reserves and resources for a life of mine that expands beyond a decade and tremendous exploration potential. So uh, we've been investing in this asset for the last two years. We did the, the acquisition and we've been building a mine on time, on budget, when no one else was really daring to build mines and deploy capital because investors were risk adverse and not really supportive. So we did a controversial transaction. We deployed capital being in a way counter cyclical and it's now that we're going to start to harvest no and i believe that's an important uh junction for investors to look at uh, fortuna as an opportunity i believe we're deeply discounted today against our peers for example on multiples over over cash flow so something to note and, and, and look at because i believe investors are in this mode of Okay, showed me a, a good couple of quarters of production with the new mine in the portfolio. And uh, that's where we are right now, right? At that crossroads. Beautiful. Well, Jorge Ganoza, co-founder, president, and CEO of Fortuna Silver, thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience. big thank you once again to Jorge Canosa, co-founder, CEO, and president of Fortuna Silver. That was a very illuminating conversation. Someone truly who seems to know the business from experience, nothing theoretical here, from the school of life, as we might say. Also, we have several new videos from the Global Mining Symposium that took place in late May. You can find them on northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.